But if you look really to the medium term, you're going to, I think, see that many of the tasks, if not the whole work of lawyering, but many of the tasks involved in lawyering might be better done by non-human systems. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. To end our second series of the Pupillage Podcast, we wanted to look into the future. What lies ahead for the bar in the world of automation? Will there still be lawyers in our lifetimes, or are the robots coming for us? It may sound like science fiction, but the changes brought by machines are starting to trickle through into our legal lives. From today's paperless courts and judicial emails, the bar is gradually starting to evolve. Soon, can we expect to see virtual courts and automated decision-making? Will junior lawyers be replaced by disclosure computers, sifting evidence at a faster rate and more efficiently? Will lawyers and judges be made redundant? It sounds apocalyptic, but if you've listened to the podcast and are attracted to a career at today's bar, we wanted to make sure you are forewarned and prepared for tomorrow's. Jamie Suskind is a barrister practising at Littleton Chambers. Having been called to the bar in 2013, he now specialises in employment, commercial, sports and public law. But, fascinating though they are, those areas of law were not the reason we were keen to get him on the podcast. Jamie comes from a family of futurologists and is the author of Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. One of the things that worries me about making this podcast and encouraging students to come to the bar is thinking about what the bar is going to look like in the future. Will there even be a bar by the time the next generation are coming through? And so we thought that this was a question that has probably been hotly debated in the Suskind household. So, Jamie, are the bar's days numbered? You you made me think we talk about little else, but actually, (laughs) look, um, non-human systems are growing more capable, but not perhaps in the way that... The, uh, the mainstream perception would have you believe. So I think we're still quite a long way from artificial general intelligence, machines which have consciousness or creativity like a human does or even like a, an animal does. The systems that are being developed just now are, are much more narrow. They're able to perform a small number of tasks extremely well, in many respects better than human beings can but they don't do it by thinking like human beings. In fact, the most advanced artificial intelligence technologies just now are essentially massive data crunching units, machine learning systems that can look through an enormous body of text or of data and find patterns or learn skills. So the big question we've got to ask is which of the tasks that are currently done by lawyers, particularly junior lawyers, are tasks which in the future might be better done by machines? And the answer is some. Uh, But we also have to ask a deeper question, which is this. Are are machines going to change the fabric of society or our justice system in such a way that means that actually what we think of as the the legal process itself changes? So to use an analogy from medicine, you, you can ask whether it's possible to automate the work of brain surgeons. But there's a deeper question about whether technologies such as nanotechnology might make brain surgery itself unnecessary. And so we have to ask whether the legal processes in which we all play a part and which we take for granted and have done for hundreds of years will still be as relevant to the future as they are now. I'm conscious I'm answering your question with more questions, but wherever you want to go with that. It seems to me that there is development and most of it is being done by the big solicitors firms at the moment who are starting to use computers to do things like document review, due diligence, perhaps legal professional privilege reviews of material, that sort of thing, redactions, maybe even some legal research. And as that trickles through to the bars, I think inevitably it will, as soon as those, you know, when those systems are up and running, being used effectively, then I think a lot of the work that junior barristers cut their teeth on will evaporate. Is that, do you think that's right? I do. Uh, And it is the the big law firms, but also just big corporations generally that are using these technologies, which are often owned by um, companies which are not themselves law firms. So there are programs which can do document review, uh, which can generate documents in a way that typically have been entrusted to junior staffers, whether in law firms or at the bar. And right now, those systems, I think it's generally agreed, work best in conjunction with human beings. So 
a partner, for instance, at a law firm might review the consequences of a document generation exercise or of a document review exercise. And working together, those two systems are able to produce a superior result and crucially in, in far less time. So the hours and hours that junior solicitors in particular have spent on those tasks in the past and build very heartily for uh, may not be available in the future. Now, some barristers listening to this will listen, will be saying, well, actually, document review isn't a big part of my practice. Um, I, I think for those of us at the commercial end of the bar, it probably is when you're a junior barrister. You do end up having massive amounts of paperwork dumped on your desk and you're asked to find particular documents. Sometimes the tasks are more sophisticated than simply um, reviewing them for relevance, though. So, you know, for instance, you're trying to find documents that are particularly prejudicial towards the other side or helpful for your side. But it's not unreasonable to assume that as uh, these systems grow in sophistication and are fed more and more data, that they might be able to replicate that work, obviously not by thinking the way that we do or reading in the way that we do. And sure, I think that would deprive those who currently perform that legal work of a, a considerable amount of the time that they are normally uh, using to, to do that work. So the key thing to remember, I think, in historical perspective is that these systems have only just begun. I mean, they are a couple of seconds old. And people love to pick holes in them and say how uh, unsophisticated or error-prone they are, as if lawyers themselves aren't sometimes unsophisticated <laughs> and error-prone. Um, but if you look really to the medium term, you're going to, I think, see that many of the tasks, if not the whole work of lawyering, but many of the tasks involved in lawyering might be better done by non-human systems. So no, I don't think we're going to be completely barged out of the picture you know, in the course of our career span. But certainly a lot of the jobs that, in which we, it might be said, we cut our teeth, uh, many of those jobs I think will go. You started by saying that there will be some tasks, I think it was document generation, where a combination of a machine plus a partner will result in a, a superior document. But how is it then that the lawyers will acquire the experience and um, what experience really, I suppose, to be able to input at that partner level if they don't have the opportunity to, to do the work at a junior level? It's a good question and a fair question. And I think that it's first and foremost one that law firms will have to answer. I'd say a couple of points. One is anyone who has recently been a junior lawyer will tell you that many of the tasks that they do as a junior lawyer are not preparing them well for being a partner. It's quite the opposite. They're basically just money-making yeah. drones for the law firms for which they work. And I say that not in a disparaging way, but massive document review exercises are not necessarily the best way of becoming a skilled legal analyst or litigator. Uh, generating pro forma contracts using um, internal software system is not necessarily making you a much better contract lawyer. The legal learning and advice giving is something that we're going to have to find better ways of training people for. But I would say that a lot of what people do just now isn't already isn't training them yeah. to be, you know, senior lawyers. Um, and I think a lot of senior lawyers look back on their early career and say that, be that bears no resemblance to what I do now. Yes. Um, so that's the first point that I'd make. The second is that it's obviously a challenge. There is no way around it. What I would add though is that it, it's not necessarily just going to be the work of junior lawyers you know the people at the, at the bottom of the pile that are that is automated because actually the amount of skill needed to perform a particular task by human is not always a good indicator of whether it'll be automated first precisely because machines don't think like us mm. so we're far closer to automating the work of junior lawyers than we are for example who require a lot of training and a lot of education than we are the work of bricklayers or the work of makeup artists or hairdressers or barbers. So you will find, I think, that certain tasks prove stubbornly resistant to automation, whereas others, including jobs that partners do uh, and junior lawyers don't do, might be automated much more readily. So I don't think it's just going to be a matter of waiting until you reach that canopy of senior partnership or of senior barristerhood uh, and then starting to do proper legal work. I think legal work will remain throughout the profession, but just perhaps not as consistently as it does just now. 
if if you're a listener at university, perhaps you just started university, you're studying law, would you be worried about this? Is this, I mean, what are the sort of timescales that these changes are going to come about in? Because presumably they're going to mean that there are far fewer jobs for junior solicitors, perhaps junior barristers, when this ultimatum arrives. Is that something you'd be worried about if you were just starting your legal training? I think if I was someone who was just starting my legal training now, I'd probably be, feel okay about it. But I think we're talking about over the next sort of half life cycle that these you'll see really profound changes. Should they be worried about it though? Absolutely. If you're going into a law degree now and thinking that the legal profession is going to look like what you've seen on the telly or what you've read about in the books in the past, it just won't be. It'll be completely different. Not least that there are going to be massive disruptors in the market who are not traditional law firms, whether it's the big four professional services firms or others, who say, hey, we can do the work that lawyers do uh, without all the fancy billing and expense, and we can do it better. <laughs> and ideally, if you're training to be a lawyer, you want now to be thinking about entrepreneurialism as well. What, how can I deliver legal services in an excellent way other than sim- simply pursuing the traditional mechanisms of um, joining a law firm or becoming a pupil barrister. I think those career paths will still be open for a while yet, but I think we should see an enormous opportunity among people who are capable of spanning both the worlds of law and business and technology to find new commercial solutions to ancient legal problems or problems of legal service delivery. So for those of our listeners who do indeed sort of think of this as a really exciting moment, should they be looking to do further studying, do you think, on a sort of law and tech masters or something like that? Or what, what sort of things can they do to prepare themselves to be in the state of mind where they might um, flourish? Well, it seems unarguable to me that in most law firms, or big law firms at least in London, some genuine knowledge and understanding of technology will serve you well. They aren't foolish. They are themselves starting to incubate and generate legal technologies and to purchase them uh, from other companies. And if you are able to add value in that space, that will make you a valuable person and will set you aside. I, I regret that in this country, our education system is still so segmented as between disciplines. Mm. There are very few genuinely interdisciplinary people. And if you can understand the rudiments of science and technology and engineering and uh, data analysis and statistics and the like, as well as becoming a lawyer, you will unquestionably add commercial value to the firm or chambers that hires you. Partly because many of the legal disputes arising in the future will touch upon technology, but partly because technology is going to change the way we lawyer. So, so yes, there is always going to be room for brilliant draftspeople and for close legal analysis conducted by human beings. And yes, you've got to get the basics right when you're studying law. But if you really want to thrive in the next 10 or 20 years, I think you've got to be able to add something different. In the past, you might have been told, get more life experience or get more commercial experience. Uh, And these are all valuable things. But if I was starting again now, I would say to my younger self, learn and understand about technology. What does that mean? Does that mean that you need to be able to code? Does it mean that you need to be able to design an app? Does it mean that you need to understand, I don't know, forensic data analysis? What do you mean by technology? The more the better. I mean, if you are genuinely able to program Mm. and yourself think about ways that you can automate certain legal tasks, and I speak to people all the time who find for their firms, innovative wee ways of doing tasks that were taking them hours beforehand, you're going to add value. If you can crunch data uh, and design algorithms that can consistently do so in a way that is useful for legal practitioners, you will add value. Uh, It's no surprise, incidentally, that people like that are in hot demand around the private sector, whether it's in banks or in pharmaceutical companies or in other commercial entities, those skills are really valuable. So I'm afraid, yes, it does sometimes mean hard skills. Uh, But if not, then you absolutely need to understand in a kind of social science way what these technologies are that are changing the world and the rudiments of how they function. So 
you should understand what artificial intelligence and machine learning generally mean and what the limits and expectations on them are, what blockchain is and where it comes from and how it might change the nature of legal obligation and legal title, what the Internet of Things is and how it might give rise to issues relating to liability and insurance uh, and security, what crypto methods generally involve and how they might be commercially relevant to your clients or to governments if you're dealing with public policy issues. These are the big issues of our time. And to be illiterate in them is, I think, as dangerous as perhaps a generation ago it would have been to be illiterate in basic commerce or uh, in basic understanding of how public policy works. Mm -hmm. The big point to emphasize, and this is the thing that lawyers to my mind, if they are entrepreneurial, should be focusing on, is that most legal cases are never litigated. They never come to court, but most of them never even come to lawyers because most people, <laughs> when they're in trouble with their, with their neighbors or with their jobs or with their cash or debt or whatever it is, they don't think I'm going to hire a lawyer. They think, how am I going to get through the next day? How am I going to get through the next week? What it means is that there are there is a gold mine out there if you're a, a work-hungry lawyer of legal issues that are currently not yet being advised on or acted on. And that's if you can plug that gap in the sort of latent market, you might find a way of prolonging your own career as a lawyer, but you might also increase access to justice, albeit not justice as we have typically demanded that it is. And I think that's just a realization. You know, you, you you have in mind this perfect form of judgment and a perfect form of justice, but it serves only a very, very small number of people. And the work that might be done, for instance, if a, if a system of online courts was rolled out, the work that would be needed to advise and sift and sort through and adjudicate on such decisions, of which there would be a great deal, is the work that lawyers would have to do. They probably wouldn't have names like barrister or solicitor, they probably have different names and they probably require a different set of skills. So yes, I do think there is some work out there for us, to, for people who know the law. Um, and I also think it could be matched with a desire for access to justice. Say there's a system that can by and large predict the outcome of litigation better than a lawyer can. Mm. I refuse to accept that your average litigant is nevertheless going to choose a lawyer on the basis of either A, the fact that the lawyer can give reasons, or B, the fact that the lawyer might have a nice bedside manner. I think nine out of 10 times, you're gonna to go to the system that has demonstrably proved that it is better at predicting the outcome of your dispute. eBay's dispute resolution system, for instance, resolves more dis considerably more disputes every year than the entire US justice system does. And that's not one that is giving detailed reasons or explanations. A lot of the time it works by a sort of blind auction system. It's essentially a, an alternative dispute resolution mechanism. And, you know, given the cost of lawyers and the cost of maintaining the judiciary in its present state and the low value of most legal disputes, it would surprise me if in 20 years' time the way that we are resolving small disputes, £10,000, £20,000, is by lawyering up and going to the county court, or by not lawyering up and having litigants struggle their way through a legal procedure designed for lawyers with an exasperated judge and a backlog of hundreds of cases, it would surprise me if, given the technological changes that are revolutionizing every other way that we administer public services in this country, that that is how we're going to still be administering justice. And so it's that kind of change that I think really poses the bigger threat to barristers. It's thinking that we'll still be doing the same advocacy in the same wood-panelled rooms as we were 20 years ago. No doubt there'll still be some of that. But the truth is, it's increasingly unaffordable. Uh, and I'm not making a political point, but ordinary folk most of the time can't afford lawyers. And lawyers have to ask themselves if that is a sustainable position. Or will the justice system just become the preserve of the very, very rich who are able to access um, expensive barristers and expensive solicitors? So my, my view about barristers is the biggest threat to the way that we do our business is, say you had a comprehensive online court system 
designed for resolving small civil disputes, and it didn't involve people congregating together in a courtroom, but was done online with a human judge, albeit um, not one physically present, that is going to do a lot of barristers out of their work. It is. It's not that we found a robot that can do the work of a barrister better than a barrister. It's that the work of the barrister has become unnecessary because the process which they serve itself has changed. Thank you very much, Jamie Suskind. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the People Aid podcast. Oh my goodness, I'm terrified. (laughs) Don't be. No. It seems to me that the the few jobs I can think of that are really safe from automation are gardening um, and ski instructing. Have you not seen those robo lawnmowers that are murdering hedgehogs? I haven't thought about them. I think the pruning and preening of flowers is something that robots are not yet good at, but your lawn can definitely be mowed by little automated guys. So I'm going to have to cross gardener off the list then. What was the other one you said? Ski instructor. Ski instructor. Yeah, I think that's going to be a while before machines can beat humans. I suppose, although I suspect a great deal of the skiing that's done in the future will be done in virtual reality rather than going to the mountain itself. Oh, Oh, come on. I don't know. Imagine being able to customise your experience perfectly, not actually have a risk of breaking your spine or your legs or to... Takes out all the fun, doesn't it? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Again, though, skiing. We have an access to skiing problem. Yes, that's certainly true. It's a very expensive pastime. (laughs) Yeah. So the municipal virtual reality ski centre might become very popular. automated systems and comparing them to what we have now helpfully exposes some of the weaknesses in our current, let's say, entirely human system. Alex Glassbrook practices at Temple Garden Chambers, where he has a particular specialism in high-value personal injury cases and road vehicle cases, especially those featuring the new driverless technology. He's the author of The Law of Driverless Cars, An Introduction, so he isn't afraid to look into the crystal ball. We invited him on the podcast to tell us where he sees the future of the bar. Alex, welcome to the Pupilage podcast. What do you think are the biggest technological challenges facing the bar? Well, I think the immediate challenge, um, and I pause to to put this in a polite way, is, is that most of the courts are not as proficient in existing quite familiar technology as they should be and uh, so I think I think the bar and it's not something that very junior barristers and upcoming recent students will have a problem with because they're very familiar with all of this tech but I think the bar has a bit of a role in in gently guiding the courts towards uh, the useful parts of existing technology. So what would you describe as being the useful parts of existing technology i mean are we are we talking email here or well email is is um is sadly a, a start of it I, I i think uh, especially since the e-judiciary addresses were introduced most of the judiciary is now is now aware of that um but actually there are even sort of very basic points like sort of word processing and the usefulness of having word copies of skeletons things that the higher courts are very proficient in Um, but some of the other courts um, aren't. And then, of course, there's the issue we'll probably come on to of sort of paperless practice and volume of paper that's generated in legal practice, which is something that has environmental implications as well. So that's the short-term sort of changes and challenges. Slightly longer term, it seems to me that AI is probably going to have an impact on the bar, much as many of us like to bury our heads in the sand. Do Do you think that's right? I think that is correct. It, it, there are there are forms of artificial intelligence which uh, the law society are in the process of considering. The Lord Chief Justice has a working group dealing with this as well, and particularly large scale disclosure exercises. Uh, there is uh, huge commercial activity by developers of software to produce tools. Um, that can uh, deal with large-scale disclosure and, and that's a process that, that's already already underway. So that's an aspect of work at the bar, particularly for juniors, which I suspect will be profoundly uh, affected. I'm, I'm not at all a believer in the idea that advocacy and the job of advocates will be replaced by technology, uh, nor 
the role of the judge. It seems to me that those are both fundamentally human activities. The flip side of this, though, is that thinking deeply about algorithms and behavior and law and rules and, and policy, I found makes me reflect a great deal on my existing work, my existing practice. And in, in my practice, I, I deal a great deal with uh, brain injury claims. Uh, so I'm dealing with neurology and neuropsychology and neuropsychiatric uh, questions. And there's a very clear uh, coincidental area here. And it, it, it's about psychology and how we reason and how we remember uh, and that's of direct relevance for judges because they have to adjudicate, particularly on the basis of memory. And we're in a very interesting phase of judicial thinking, I think, about evidence. Uh, I mean, the Guestman decision in 2013 by Mr Justice Leggett, as he then was now, now of the Supreme Court, pointed out that traditional thinking about memory and the confidence with which a witness gives an answer is, is really no reliable measure. And I find that the more I deal with artificial intelligence questions and how they impact upon the law and how they are likely to affect judicial decision-making, the more I reflect upon my experience as a, as a trial lawyer and as a, as a cross-examiner. So I think we have to navigate between the two reactions to artificial intelligence. There's the one fearful apocalyptic reaction and there's the other utterly trusting, shiny world yeah. type of reaction in which AI solves all problems. And the, the reality is that both of those extremes... Um, produce extreme and undesirable reactions. So if, you're, if you're fearful, you'll reject the technology, whereas there are aspects of it that are helpful, including to lawyers and judges. And if you're completely trusting in it, you won't see the obviously potential profound problems with it. And, and we as lawyers and forensic experts and people who are using to, used to drilling down to detail, we, we obviously have a role. The other aspect of this that, that I reflect upon is we always tend to talk in the future tense about algorithms as if yes. they're not in operation already. <laughs> yes, and I, I, it struck me the other week that I, I, I with other colleagues at the bar and in chambers, do law centre work as a volunteer. And it occurred to me over the last week or so when I was thinking about this podcast that actually a great deal of the work that we see in my local law centre involves decisions that have been taken by algorithms because mm -hmm. a lot of it is about debt. It's about consumer debt. Um, quite a lot of it is people coming in with streams of parking tickets that have, of course, been churned out um, completely automatically. Now, when we talk about AI, we're, we're talking about the development of machine learning, I think, quite a lot. But actually, AI already exists in, in, um, in other automated systems using algorithms. And we already have the legal effects of those. And the practical effects are often quite debilitating for people because those, those questions are difficult to challenge. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because I, I wondered if you were referring to certain decisions concerning benefits which can be made by a machine how is it that you can challenge those if you don't understand the basis on which the decision has been arrived at well i i, I mean I, I think the point that you make is an excellent one you've got to understand the basis of the decision and actually it goes deeper than that because the algorithm has been designed by a thinking person mm. in order to process a certain set of information and produce an answer um, and whatever the subject matter is whether it's benefits or whether it's whether a loan has fallen due and been unpaid and all these um, sorts of points uh, beneath the design of the algorithm is a human designer now I think you raise a very interesting deeper point about the complexity of statutory and regulatory law because if uh, those laws take a benefit system are being administered by um, a, a computer system, uh, then a case challenging a benefit decision might very well nowadays be looking into the algorithm and whether the algorithm has actually operated. Mm. And uh, one of 
the opening point, I think, in fact, Hannah Fry makes in her book is uh, about a system that was used in a state in the US mm. to calculate benefits. It produced a manifestly wrong decision. And it, it took a degree of, as I understand it, freedom of information request to establish that whereas people had assumed that it was a rather sophisticated piece of software, in fact, the, uh, the reasoning engine underneath it was an Excel spreadsheet, okay. which had been written very, very crudely. And so it was once one knew that, the, you could see uh, why it was churning out these horrible decisions. Uh, so there are all sorts of private and public, public law aspects to this. I mean, it struck me for a long time that you couldn't possibly have a system of justice where you don't have reasons, you don't really understand why the decision has been made, and I thought people just won't tolerate that. And then it struck me that, well, we have a, a jury system where the jury go into a room and they discuss it and they come out and they say guilty or not guilty. And we very often have very little idea of what has led them to reach those conclusions and we can't ask them. And it struck me that that's perhaps one of the more sophisticated algorithms of all. Yes, and I, it's, it's this sort of point that, 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 that drives me to say that we need to be discussing this topic between the two extremes, between the extremes of fear of artificial intelligence and, and seeing where its benefits lie. My feeling is, in fact, in parallel with driverless cars, that, that it might be that the, find, that the ending place of this technology is not as a completely automated system, but as what I think of as a guardian angel type of system, where it's a sort of a check course then you get into the difficult area in the judicial context of how much uh, weight would the automated systems reasoning have on a judge who might have decided otherwise and that's a whole different question but that's these are reasons why I think the first thing is for judges to become much more acquainted with technology than they are and practitioners there will always be change at the bar it, it, it's no it's no different. The character and the reason for the change is different. It's technology, but there will always be change at the bar. And I, I think it would be... It's, it's a difficult career to get into. The competition is very fierce. But I would say exactly the same thing now, as was really said to me. If you are dead set on it, put your head down. Don't think too much about the statistics against you put your head down and, and go for it. And it's an immensely rewarding career. That was a really lovely note to end on. Thank you so much, Alex. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. There's an alternative reality from here, perhaps, where we try to reconceptualize what it means to be a lawyer and the role of lawyers in society. Um, other jobs you know, that are set for automation that we might miss, I don't think people are going to miss their lawyer. Um, perhaps we haven't done a very good job at... Uh, public outreach or PR, because <laughs> um, people will not be as uh, sympathetic. But I think that can change if we can, you know, re recover what are the sort of original function of what lawyers were, it was the role of counselor, the role of facilitator, the, you know, people don't want just solutions to problems, they also want counseling, they want a human being to empathize with them and to know that, like, they're not alone in this crazy worst experience they've had in their life odyssey, which is usually the circumstances of when yeah. people come to meet you. Um, so, Playing that role and emphasizing that kind of pastoral side to what we, you know lawyers do, I think, would be very important. Um, of course, it doesn't work in all contexts, but again, uh, a machine can't comfort you um, when you're facing the worst day of your life or some terrible experience in court. Christopher Marco is, as you will hear, Canadian. Originally from Toronto, he is now a fellow at Jesus College Cambridge and a lecturer in the Cambridge University Law Faculty. His research is concerned with the impact of artificial intelligence on legal practice. He's interested in topics such as the regulation of artificial intelligence, AI, and other digital technologies, and the extent to which algorithms can do the work of lawyers more cheaply, quickly, and effectively than humans. We're delighted to welcome him to the Pupilage podcast to tell us about the future of the profession. Very big welcome, Christopher. Thank you very much. So, is the rule of law going to be replaced by the rule of robots? Probably not robots. Robots are costly, and you gotta you gotta build them, and they're hard to make walk properly, and not bump into things, and do all manner of uh, terrible things. Um, but the rule of law is a really interesting word. And it's a word that's fascinated me because I think it's so central to everything that 
we do in law. And it's, it's, it's infused, it's built into the very fabric of what we understand the law to be, but what does it mean? Can I ask you first? Because <laughs> you guys are out there defending it day in, day out. There are entire books about this. Exactly. Well, I suppose as a, as a very rough definition, I would say that the rule of law means that decisions are made according to the law, which is passed by Parliament, by your legislature, rather than decisions made according to the whim of the individual decision-maker. I, I, and I would definitely agree. If that, was, if that was jurisprudence, I would say that was absolutely a great answer. This is the question that, in the first year of my PhD, I was asked by Professor David Howarth um, at the Law Faculty of Cambridge, because I, I use this concept of rule of law too in my work, and he asked me a question that lingered with me for the following three years of writing, and he said, how do you know the legal system's falling apart? And it seemed like a very deceptively simple question to me at the time, and I thought, well, I, I guess you'd, you would know it was falling apart if you smelled smoke and there was chaos and there was fire. Um, but it's really a question about how we observe systems, and we kind of take for granted that the legal system is a system, and that the rule of law is a sort of way of programming the system, but how do we know when it's not serving the purpose it's supposed to? So we take it for granted and we use this word, but the, the rule of law really does mean exactly what you said. It means that things are more or less going as we expect them to be in a liberal democracy. There is some sort of procedural fairness, transparency, people are operating above board, and that all of the ways in which consequential decisions that are made about people or organizations are made in sort of fair ways. This is the basis of administrative law. But as more and more of this legal process, as, as I'll call it, sort of becomes computational in nature, becomes algorithmic, it becomes invisible in nature. But we have this really proprietary logic about how we things operate in law, and it really doesn't really make sense to the outside world uh, often or not until things go wrong. And I would say that we're seeing evidence now on a whole host of fronts uh, that democracy maybe isn't as resilient as we once thought it was. And one of the solutions to this is well, if, if we're the problem because we make biased decisions or unfair decisions or we weight factors that we shouldn't weight, maybe machines are better out of this, that they will inherit all of our virtues with none of our vices and allow for sort of better decisions. But that's a really nice sort of story, but it goes back to this question of the rule of law. How do we know that it's being upheld if we're not seeing any of it take place? Okay, so is this where the sort of black box comes in? Is, is what you're referring to, the fact that um, you may be able to put data in to or feed data into the algorithm and then get a, a, an answer or an output out. But your, what has led to that outcome is completely unknowable. So yeah, so we, we do call this the black boxing of law. But what's, what, I, what I think it's really important to stress is that law has always kind of been a black box. I mean, it was, if you go back far enough in time, was something that was only known to a select few people. You had to study, you had to read for it, and this was inaccessible to most of the world. It was like a, lawyers were, particularly in a temple such as this, were like a priest case, who could interpret the, the, the legal texts and sort of pass down the law. Um, but as people began to read and we can disseminate information more, the creation of the printing press allowed people to access the law, to scrutinize the law more. But what we're facing now is that, while well, as the printing press allowed us to scrutinize the same textbook, the same statute, the nature of digital information allows people to create information um, and allow, to, allow that information to be rendered invisible in how it's enforced in the world, and the idea that if you put a computational system in a context where it's making a decision about whether or not you get a loan, a mortgage, a job, or any sort of opportunity, you are offloading decision-making authority that used to be part of a human to a machine. Now, there are people who say that these kinds of decisions that people make can be made fairly and procedurally correct via machines, but knowing the limit between what kinds of decisions we want made by non-human agents and what kind of decisions we want made uh, to be remain the purview of judges and lawyers, well, that's what I think we're missing in this entire conversation. I think that's what we're going to be facing. Machine learning is already in place, and and there are already um, I don't I'm not sure what the right vocabulary is, but automated decisions or what do you what do you call decisions made by computers? So the, but the, the usual acronym is ADM. It's called automated decision making. Okay. And most of us have encountered this, and everywhere from if you've ever ordered food on Deliveroo or Uber Eats and had to request a refund because something wasn't right in your order, the refund that you get is an automated system sort of evaluating the cost and then issuing the refund. 
But this is, you know, is a small sort of example of a sort of low-value transaction. But the nature of decision-making, whether it's to grant a refund because your drink was warm, isn't really structurally different from the nature of decision-making in any other context, such as should you grant travelers a refund if their flight was X amount of hours late? So the kind of decisions that we make on a small level that we're really used to can be scaled up to really, really important and legally consequential decisions, such as should someone be granted bail? Is someone likely to pose a high threat of recidivism? Should someone uh, be recognized as having capacity or a lack thereof? These kinds of uniquely legal decisions that turn upon sort of intangible quantities that any practitioner would, would tell you from experience, you will not know the answer to until you are there in the room. Um, we're starting to think that these two are the kinds of things that machines can do just as well or better than us. What sort of operations at the moment then? You gave an example of Deliveroo. What other decisions in the field of either law or criminal justice, sort of broadly what we might sure. regard as legal decisions, are currently being made by machines. So one of the best examples is actually an American example. Um, it's a system called Compass. It stands for Correction Offender Management uh, System. It's a basically it's a risk algorithm. It's a uh, algorithm used uh, at the point of custody to determine whether or not someone admitted to a custody suite in American prisons poses a low, medium, or high degree of risk. This is the kind of you know sort of bread and butter decision that a custody sergeant will make when they meet people when they come in. But it's also time-consuming and a legally consequential one. So Compass, which is basically just a checklist that's been sort of put into a computer, allows these decisions to be automated. Turns out, uh, ProPublica having done most of the sort of digging on this, well, these decision systems are incredibly racially biased uh, and skewed such that black offenders who commit a less serious crime are more likely to receive a higher custodial sentence or more likely to receive a custodial sentence than white offenders for less serious crime. So there are known biases. You know, this is the familiar stuff to people who work in AI and law that, yes, machines inherit all of our biases, particularly if they're trained on data from a society that is, in, ha in fact, racist. And then, so what do you think would be the next level of machine decisions? So, yeah, so th there is a sort of, like, stratigraphy to this. And, what but, does that word mean? Well, sort of a layering to it, sort of, like, what kinds of decisions are we okay with? Well, they're the ones that we didn't really have a say in. They're the delivery decisions to refund part of your order. They are perhaps Amazon returns. These kind of automated decisions which are easier for companies to automate as opposed to have a human being approved because of, well, their bottom line, it makes more sense to do that. So the next level will be decisions that really have a sort of impact upon an individual. These might be uh, mortgage decisions, loan decisions. They might be uh, job applications. We're seeing the use of machine learning and sorting uh, job applications, CVs, to do sort of like word filtering to make sure that every application contains the right sort of keywords, which has a sort of paradoxical effect on how people apply for jobs if you're just trying to game a system to make sure it passes the algorithmic sort. Um, sort of disincentivizes individuality when you're applying for jobs to stand out when you're really trying to hack a system to apply for a job. But this is, again, all very familiar. By now, it should be. This is the mm -hmm. basis for how things like LinkedIn work. I mean, I'm sure most students who are applying for training contracts, many pupillages are, are familiar if you've applied to even large management. You've, you've seen this in action, whether you know it or not. Um, but the sort of Next level from that will be the kinds of decisions that we would expect normally to be made by judges or lawyers or otherwise appointed and empowered officials. We might call these legally consequential decisions. So custody decisions in the U.S. is one. Um, but we're also seeing policing decisions being made on the basis of data and predictive policing. Here in London, knife crime is a huge problem. Uh, well, there's an app for that. We have ways of predicting where crime might occur based upon population demographic data that is, again, potentially deeply racist and problematic. But um, what we're really heading towards is, well, if the brain and the kinds of decisions that humans make is finite, if we can map this, if we can replicate it, there is no kind of decision that we make that could not be repeated in principle. Um, I'm not advocating that. I'm skeptical as to that. But that's kind of the, the direction we're headed in, that there's really nothing unique about us anymore. What if it was important to the decision in that case, whether the drink was in fact warm rather than cold? I mean, what about the assessment of 
evidence, I suppose, and credibility. So it all comes down to time. I mean, if you think about the throughput on a platform like Deliveroo, the amount of orders they're taking in an hour, the amount of people that have to put a request in for tech support or help or a return, there's just not enough labor to go around to do that level of investigation. It's not worth it for the Deliveroo's of the world to pay someone to do that. we have technologies like natural language processing, which allows computers to understand and interpret natural language. You kind of know it as Siri or uh, Amazon Alexa. Um, but it's much quicker on these sort of small transactional decisions where, from Deliveroo's point, it's just easier to pay you your three-pound refund for your drink than it is to employ a human to go through these and open themselves up to saying and getting into arguments with angry customers. It's really easy just so, to have a machine do it. So, so the outcome might be that you get your refund even though your, your drink was perfect. Yeah, I, I suppose you could. You could you could straight up lie to Deliveroo and say you didn't get anything, but you'd be a terrible person. We wouldn't want to do that on the published <laughs> podcast. So I'm just interested in what you think the the disruptors of legal services as we recognise them are going to look like. And it seems to me one... One area that is really ripe for the picking is that as soon as you get into a situation where you can plug all of the documents into a a computer and an algorithm and get an outcome that is right 75% plus of the time, that becomes a very valuable service. So you could have completely independent providers saying, you've got a legal dispute, rather than going to court and incurring court fees of X and all of your legal costs and running the risk of having to pay the legal costs of the other side and not getting an outcome for two years, come to us in an afternoon we'll plug in your data and we'll tell you the outcome and everyone can walk away so how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go with case outcome predictions the whole way okay (laughs) um so we're in a common law country right yeah so uh we know roughly that over time our law evolves we use all these phrases sort of offhand that the common law evolves over time it evolves to suit well the needs of the society that it embeds itself in and the people that exist at that time. The problem with, well, of the many problems as to whether or not you could accurately predict um, outcomes is the problem with predicting the future full stop. Um, I, I, I am yet to be convinced that's possible. I'm, I'm, I'm open to being convinced otherwise, but for now there is no science of the future. There is perhaps a managerial science of the future that will let you make these kinds of um, calculations on a risk-based analysis, is it worth litigating this or not? The problem with that is that machine learning by its very nature uses historical information to dictate or make a probabilistic inference, a guess, a rough guess basically, as to what something will be, which way a case will go. When you use historical data over and over again to predict what an outcome will be, you are basically using history to determine what the future is. You meddle with this evolutionary sort of development of the law, as opposed to having new situations give rise to new decisions, new concepts to allow the law to evolve. Instead, what you have is the kind of ossification of law, trying to move to a system where all litigation decisions were based upon a probabilistic risk analysis as to whether or not you'd win. Well, first of all, you'd have a very, well, I don't know how it would affect the sort of evolutionary development, but you would only be getting cases brought to court that people were incredibly certain that they would win in. You would have a sort of branch in the path of the law that I don't think we could accurately predict going forward, to be honest. What other tech do you think is going to have a a significant impact, particularly on the bar? In your earlier episodes, when you're sort of advocating to students like what kind of skills they emphasize when they're coming to the bar, like what, what are they now? What would you say? The skills, I think you need intelligence as a sort of baseline. Sure. I think you need strong interpersonal skills because you've got, it, it, it's all about relationships. Even if you're a tax lawyer who's sort of sitting at their desk, you know, sooner or later you're going to have to persuade a judge or you're going to have to talk to a witness or cross-examine a witness. That's all about um, interpersonal skills as well as your client care skills. The ability to read, digest and understand what is relevant in a large volume of material. Constructing arguments which, as George said, are persuasive for a variety of reasons and being able to respond to the person you're trying to persuade in order to better achieve that outcome. Resilience and stamina. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. So so I... What I hear you saying there is that you really have to possess a sort of robust, adaptive intelligence. You have to be able to harness not only a sort of intellectual horsepower, but you have to have a sort of rhetorical, uh, you know, the ability to convince people with words is part of what you do. It's part of this is your presentation, your legal argumentation. 
these are really hard things for computers to do. I mean, we, it, we, we can give you a really precise answer on the amount of like decimal digits of pi, but the ability to construct you know, persuasive argumentations that appeal to human emotions, this is the sort of upper echelons of what we call AI research. I mean, the, these are the things that are hard to do, but they are hard for normal people to do too, which is why it's a sort of rarefied skill set. As we, you know, it's an open question right now as to whether we, computation will allow us to do this, but for now, I would say the bar kind of personifies those skills, which are, for now, hardest and perhaps the most out of reach for computation. But So is that why the question becomes whether it will remain desirable to have those skills employed for the resolution of disputes? Yeah, so, so I mean, just maybe simply more efficient and cheaper yeah. ways of, of of doing that. So yeah, so the 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 system of you know the adversarial system of of law that we've inherited is one that really turns upon you know having rhetorical flair and force. Now there is an alternative legal system we could have created whereby that was not part of it. But let us forget you know lest we forget that the legal profession as it was grew out of ancient rhetoric. I mean the reason why we teach Roman law at Cambridge and Oxford is because law as a profession as we understand it now, really did grow out of the practice of public oration, rhetoric, the ability to convince people and to make arguments that were persuasive to other people. So we are very much indebted to that kind of you know, skill set, and that's why perhaps people gravitate towards this as a profession. Um, but it's also really, really hard. It's really, really hard to do that as a skill set. Things that are easier for computers to do are the things that are procedural, that are repetitive, that do not require adaptive intelligence, you know, adapting yourself to your audience or your speaker. Um, that's the sort of you know, further out there stuff, but the mechanics of legal argumentation, the extent to which this can be formalized to at least help you construct the argument, I don't know. It's an open question right now, and I think that it's one that we kind of have to start weighing in on a little bit more. So one thing I worry about a lot um, is whether or not in all good conscience I can encourage people to become barristers mm. if I speak to school-age students, whether I can look them in the eye and say, this is mm. my job and you should do it because I worry that there won't be the same job when they come through. Do you think that's a, a valid concern or do you think I'm worrying unnecessarily? I think that's a very valid concern. It's not to say that everything will go. No, no, there's nothing absolutely inevitable about this. I mean, we have the ability to make conscious choices about the things we turn over to computers or where we invest government resources or public revenue. So like, there's no need to be like totally fatalistic and just assume that there's going to be no jobs, we're all going to be left fighting over squirrel pelts and 45-degree heat. Um, <laughs> we might. I mean, it'd be exciting, but... Um, <laughs> No, we can make conscious choices, but I would say that the tenor of the conversation and the way that momentum seems to be picking up as well, I mean, major firms have really committed to investing heavily in AI and machine learning. I'm sure you guys have hear about it more than you'd like to in the course of your day. Um, and with this comes a toll, yeah. I mean, as there is less work to go around, there will be need, there will be less people needed to do it, but that's not unique to law. I think that's endemic to the automation of the brain and the cognitive domain of human beings. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. When you think about the future, you cannot think about it in the sort of, you know, nice linear development that we are talking about. You're talking about modeling human level intelligence and being able to replicate that computationally. I mean, we're talking about a future whereby most of what we understand the law to be has probably been transformed. We can imagine, and I think that lawyers kind of fall into this trap, uh, more so academic lawyers than people who actually are on the front lines every day, um, imagining that whatever neat little discipline of law they end up in is going to just be exactly like that 10, 15, 20 years on. But the world's going to be transformed by technology in some way, but uh, corporate law is going to be just, just as it is now. And I think that's a really sort of like sanguine vision of how not to understand the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs>